0: spire
1: welcome back to starting now i'm your host jeff saris this is the show where i talk to entrepreneurs to reveal the unexpected paths to entrepreneurship today my guest is jay akunzo you can think of jay as the podcast whisperer he knows a thing or two a dozen a hundred, a 1, thousand things about podcasting. And he is very prolific in his creating in terms of podcasting and show running. He also has a docu-series for Help Scout. But the level of production, the, just the content itself is phenomenal. I really, really appreciate the stuff that he does. And I think that, that you will as well. And I hope you check it out at the end of this episode. But before that, Let's dive right into my conversation with Jay Akunzo. So, who is Jay Akunzo? I mean, I know it's a very generic question. I know you're a podcaster, you have your docu series, you you run a run a company called Marketing Showrunners, and do these things. But sort of,
0: how do you encapsulate everything that you do? <laughs> if I it depends on the audience. If i if I'm home and it's post COVID. Every deity ever, please pray to them that we get through this soon uh, so <laughs> if if you know God's willing, God willing, whatever you believe in willing, um if we're through the pandemic and I'm home with people that don't quite understand like the creator economy, don't live on the internet like I do for work, I'm a writer. I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, almost everything I work on involves writing, in fact, I'd go as so far as as I say everything, you know you know, speeches, shows blog posts, essays, books, you name it, it, it comes back to writing for me. So to the uninitiated, I'm a writer. To the folks that are happy to be multi-hyphenates and create a lot of stuff or, or they're in the workplace, what I say is I write and create original series about creativity and business for good. That's kind of like the most all-encompassing but shortest description I could possibly give. But you know, I have a project-based career, not a job title-based career.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. So, what does that actually look like then? Creating these shows <laughs> for good, like what what is the actual yeah. sort of nuts and bolts of what you're doing?
0: Well, in 2016, I left my last in-house job, which was I was the VP of content and community for a uh, an early stage VC firm. I'd worked for startups, I'd worked for tech companies, uh, big like Google, mid-sized like HubSpot. Back then, they were pre-IPO and very, very small startups. And and VC was like the last place I could kind of go to see technology companies and entrepreneurship from it from a different angle and at that point it was like okay I'm gonna start my own thing there's nowhere else for me to go I, I you know I've seen all the different nooks and crannies of this industry like it's time to do something man and so I I went on on my own but in an atypical fashion I always thought I had to be like a, a SaaS founder or something like that but that's not me I just like to tell stories I like to make make stuff but specifically content and so I had a podcast called unthinkable which is still going, people still talk to me about it, even though I struggle to make it consistently. So like Mm -hmm. 2021 will be me focusing on bringing that show back to answer your question of where I focus, bringing back a show that is uh, self-funded, that is highly narrative and highly produced in style to tell stories about creative people. Um, So to me, that's like the heartbeat project because it's the least commercialized project. It just exists because I want it to exist. So I had that show back in 2016 And I started getting inbounded for speaking engagements for, you know, other brands who wanted me to make a show, uh, drift flipboard, uh, Wistia and my favorite ever, which was with help scout. I got to live out my like Anthony Bourdain dreams Uh (laughs) help scout, which is a customer support uh, software company hired me to do an in the field docu series called against the grain, which was unbelievably fun. Like I kept looking at the producer and the DP, like, are we getting we're getting paid to do this? Really? They're letting us do this. Because we were we were truly producing a documentary series out in the field looking for companies and talking to these businesses that don't believe in the winner-take-all hyper growth, you know, extreme end game capitalism that I think does a lot of damage on the world they believe in building businesses, for-profit businesses, based on a shared belief system with their communities, based on doing good, greater good for the communities, based on craft and putting people and customers at the center of everything, you know, not just how fast can we grow to hell with any consequences. And so we got to do three of those stories and then the pandemic hit. And so you kind of find me in like many people, I'm in this mode of like reinvention and, and looking forward and seeing what's next
1: yeah so much has changes here and like i see like you're going into courses and things But before we get too far that i love that series against the grain like once i looked at it it is it's gorgeous just like your audio i mean your storytelling is at a level that i feel is just beyond most content that we see out there and it really shows that you're writing (laughs) your um like even your like your personality and everything because you've been doing this for a while you've found like you've sort of crafted that over time
0: i i can't tell you how much i appreciate that and at the same time like wholeheartedly disagree with that (laughs) not not because like like some of the stuff i can totally acknowledge like uh against the grain looks beautifully shot the 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 producer um tyler uh bouchard and travis wilbur the dp they did an amazing job um but I find myself constantly looking at others like, how do you do that? And also do that consistently where it's not a one-off thing or a random stunt or, you know, like somehow you struck gold and somebody paid you for a flighted project that then dies and you're back to the grind. Like I find myself constantly looking out at others I admire being like, "That's, that's the good stuff. And I'm sort of like either aspiring to that or trying to mimic that at a distance. Like I find myself looking at my work and being like, okay, it's kind of a a distant echo of the things that I want it to, to actually be. So while I totally appreciate, ex- I accept and receive the compliment, <laughs> I do think that we always end up in that position as makers of anything where we're like, if I could just do it that way, I'd be satisfied. Then we get there and we're like, cool, I'm here now. What else is there? <laughs> and so I don't think your taste and your output ever quite match because I think your taste is always changing and getting more Sophisticated or refined or even just the, the, the differences in what you'd like to make, like your, your taste just changes. It's just different now. So therefore your output doesn't quite match it. So it's this constant search. Mm-hmm. Definitely.
1: So what is something then that you or maybe someone or a type of content that you look at that you now aspire to?
0: So anybody who's ever heard me interviewed is going to say like, here comes the bingo card, the center node on the bingo. I'm going to put the chip down right in the middle. Here's the free space for hearing me talk about storytelling and creativity because I'm saying this name once again, it's Anthony Bourdain. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, I think the business world and the working world deserves, it needs and deserves the types of stories that he told about cultures, food, uh, and society more broadly. The, the workplace is is a source of tremendous pride and every emotion on the human spectrum for people. And yet the content we so often get around the workplace, whether it's career advice or, you know, more business tactics in education, it always feels stiff. It feels redundant to a lot of the other stuff out there. It feels like the, it's the lowest common denominator. It's like the cheapest possible worst version we can put out for the dollars we have. Just get me over content. And we deserve so much more as people who care about our crafts and our our work. Um, Business can do tremendous good in the world if you let it, if you design it that way. And so Bourdain had this magical way of pulling out meaning from the seemingly day-to-day. You know, yes, he had gorgeous B-roll from an exotic location or city you've never seen before. But also he was sitting down eating common food for the people he was visiting. He was with a, a grandmother and her granddaughter, who would translate and he'd have an amazing meal and, and they'd tell magical, powerful stories. And I heard him accept an award once where he said, you know, all I do is I ask I ask simple questions. And so often it's the simple questions that lead to the best answers. And business content, we overthink it. We try to get smart and profess to be smart. So people take us seriously. We want to cover the biggest names and biggest brands. The, the career advice is like retreating to the bottom of the pyramid, the most possible people thinking somewhat highly of us instead of being deeply like a resonant thing in the world for people, a memorable thing and pushing people forward instead of pandering to them. Um, And that's what Bourdain did in every sense of the word. So I'd like to do that in the business world. And I am so far from being able to do that, Jeff. But like, that's when I look at like what I do now and what I'd like to do, that's the gap for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do, I can definitely see
1: that through line though. Like you are, you're telling stories in a way that really, brings the audience in makes you feel like really understand what this person has gone through how they've gotten to where they are like in terms of your practice for doing that i mean because i believe you have an english degree and everything so you you've been writing for a while um but what what type of practice do you take for towards storytelling like what kind of approach i guess
0: it's funny i think there's like this mirage a lot of creators put up when they're asked questions like that. And I'm trying to fight the urge to do it. Like my brain is telling me like invent a system, make it sound good. It's a lot of trial and error, quite frankly. It's a lot of being like, um, I want to make this, I want this to exist. I'm trying it. It's a cheap version of my hero's version and who, you know, they themselves were copying someone else in some distant corner of their minds. And so it's just making stuff. It's focusing on the body of work. Less so the project or the idea, and I think as you do that, you start to find systems and processes. Like for example, creating a premise for a new show or reinventing an existing show, you can put process to that. Like I think you know you can move from messy, sloppy writing based on frustration to a multi-paragraph little exercise called the empathy statement, which you know if it's like um, it's like the starter dough when you're cooking dough when you're baking bread or pizza dough. The starter is like this dense little thing you use to start baking the dough. Well, the empathy statement is like the densest, most powerful bit of copy you can possibly write. And it's a sign you've you've developed your ideas. So you can do stuff like that. You can put process to it, developing a premise, developing the format of your episodes, like actually documenting what is the rundown and then tinkering on that routinely. Um, Really good example of that from my work is Three Clips, which is a Mm -hmm. podcast I now host. It's kind of like Song Exploder meets inside the actor's studio for podcasters. So we're dissecting another podcaster's work and you hear it like we're clipping it and you hear the three clips. Then we're having deeper conversations about their career and the craft and the philosophy of creativity alongside the project we're deconstructing. Um, So it's a very meta show. Podcasters taking us inside their podcasts. And uh, Three Clips is highly segmented. You can hear it as a listener. I introduced it to you. But even stories like Help Scouts Against the Grain, when I worked on that show, um, we had a rundown documented. So we had the uh, like ideal, typical episode, block for block, and we would play with it and tinker on it. So again, there is process put to it. But if people are looking for a place to start, it's just shipping a lot of work. You know, it's almost like the more you can do, the more you can practice, the better you get in anything, right? So rather than try to agonize over the simple answer, just start making stuff and then reflect on it and get better. So think of it that way. It's like creativity equals repetition plus reinvention. And that to me is the formula if there is such a thing. And it feels like work and it is work, but you find a lot of joy in it and you get better faster too.
1: Yeah. And with a lot of time too. I mean, because putting in the, putting the effort and delivering or producing, Mm -hmm launching shipping however you want to look at it i mean that is the big part because if we just keep it internal too we don't have the same level of maybe investment because it's like oh i like this only i'm only doing this i'm not putting it out into the world and seeing what happens
0: and you can't learn and get better like i said just creating stuff is the process of of never-ending improvement ideally Mm -hmm. and um there's not like an arrival that you finally feel like i'm here now like i said earlier it's like i i still look like, thank you for saying nice things about my work. I, I've lost sight of that, and I, I need to hear it because I'm so focused on other people that I admire, right? Um, and so, you know, I think we we tend to put this stuff on the pe- on a pedestal, you know, big ideas and big projects, but it happens in the micro. You know that's why Three Clips endeavors to break down people's great podcasts a few pieces at a time instead of some hero's journey story, like how I built this. I think if you know if you listen closely. You can even hear those types of stories that are like the gold plated stories meant for lots and lots of people. You can hear little threads popping up like, okay, they, they touched briefly on the, the struggle there. And so I, I think if I, if I were to really understand how this person built what they built, I need to pull that thread and not just use it as a nice little story point, but actually like think about that friction and live in it for a while because they didn't have a smooth process either. Mm -hmm. So I I think we're like too busy looking for the pithy answer to all this stuff when in reality it is a lot uglier. And I think all of that gets easier to stomach if you're just like, I want to make stuff because I want it to exist instead of I want to make stuff because I want to trigger some giant outcome right away. Mm -hmm. And when you're pulling that
1: thread, then it sounds like that's almost I don't know, would that be in the research stage, knowing that I want to go in and pull on this thread? Or is it something maybe you go through with your interview and shooting, whether it's video or audio, and then you go back and oh, you know, I actually want to dive deeper here, like sort of where where in the process. Do you see that?
0: Yeah, I mean, as an interviewer, I'm sure you feel this too, like if you see me light up to an to a question and give an answer that feels a little bit different than the rest of the answers I gave you're like okay he's snapping to attention and there's something more hidden there or he got excited but he generalized and i want an example so let me ask for an example like you get these little subtle cues from subjects all the time and some of it can happen in in research but secondhand research really only it gives you some raw ingredients but not the spice right it's like you can go you're going to go shopping you have your spice rack at home usually, you're gonna go shopping for other ingredients. And that's like, I understand what Jeff did and where you've worked and what they've said publicly and you know some of the stories that have been told about the subject elsewhere. And that that's all useful as ingredients, but it's really not gonna help me cook a dish until I get home and I have to pick and choose those ingredients or throw some out or ignore them and shelf them for a while to pursue something that like in the moment makes a lot more sense. You know, it's like, I'm going to add a little Mm -hmm. more spice here. I'm going to spend more time on this thing, or I'm going to try something. Let's do a walk and talk, or let's put them in a coffee shop instead of a corporate boardroom or something like that. And so to me, it's like you have all these tiny little things at your disposal, but you're keeping the big final product in mind. So it's very similar to cooking in that way. And I think that's why I like it because I'm Italian and everything comes back to food. (laughs) (laughs) Love
1: that. Um, so one of the things I like to just dive into too, we don't talk a lot about money. I feel like just uh-huh. culturally, yeah. so I just like to sort of dive in wherever you're comfortable and just be like, so how do you make money at what you're right. doing?
0: Yeah, I tweeted out a while ago. I was like, Who here has clarity around how I make my income at the end of the day because like I see a lot of other creators, and I kind of wonder the same thing about them, and I want more people to understand how to earn a living on their craft mm-hmm. um So I'll walk you through the layers of it and I'll be as trans, like ask me anything. I'll be as transparent as you want me to be. The first layer of it, like leaving the day job in 2016 was public speaking. So I had a great mentor and, and I call him a friend now, Andrew Davis, who I think is one of the best living speakers and business thinkers alive, Andrew Davis. And he was starting a management company for up and coming speakers. And he kind of, we had beers in Boston together and we were rapping about a few different things. And he told me about this idea. And he'd seen me speak for free at a a conference in Cleveland called Content Marketing World. And he was like, I think you could do this professionally, like get paid to do it. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. Like, (laughs) you're crazy. But he showed me the ropes. He taught me how to speak professionally. in, In other words, manage the business side and the creative side um, using systems and processes and get, get in with like small gigs at first and earn new leads through those gigs and keep the flywheel going from there. Um, so that was the first layer of it. The second layer was because I was trying to support the speaking with my show unthinkable, I got inbounded to make shows for brands. And the first one that asked me, I was like, uh, yeah, this sounds awesome. Sure. Um, I think it was social media examiner, which is a trade publication asked me to do like eight, basically ads, but story style ads that they would run on their podcast about their own event. So I would like talk to a bunch of people and spice together into a story. And you know, the CTA at the end was buy your tickets now. And so it wasn't really a show. It was just kind of story style ads in someone else's show. And then another brand came to me and they wanted me to make a pilot for them. And then that pilot led into like a pilot series for them. And you kind of, I just built up from there. So now I have two income streams speaking and making shows for brands. Well, making shows becomes a production company or an agency, which is not what I want to be doing forever. Like, yes, I love working with clients to make great shows, but I didn't want to build a services company. And so I said, all right, I can also teach this stuff too. And that can diversify me further. So I developed a workshop kind of using all the lessons learned of doing like, I think it was, ended up being 12 different client shows and a couple of my own. I was like, okay, there's process here. And I keep having the same conversations with everybody. I can teach it. And that led to last year me doing some like eight week intensives online with cohorts of people. So now I have speaking plus show running plus workshops. And there's no more time in the day. And I need to find more <laughs> efficient ways to make revenue. So the workshop becomes a course. I can sell that to infinity because it's pre recorded. Um, and right now you're finding me about two or three weeks out from launching a membership group test which would really heavily fund unthinkable and actually inject some of the members who kind of earn their way forward into that show to be voices themselves and creators and, you know, looked at as people that, that know a thing or two about story. So that's a lot of a lot, right? It's exhausting. It, it never feels certain. Um, speaking, I got punched in the mouth at the beginning of the pandemic as all speakers did. And I'm still finding a way to find that revenue again. So it, I never quite feel like it's done. I figured it out, but that's how far I've come so far.
1: And when you started then with speaking, that is a big leap for someone who maybe just quit their job, lost their job to go right into speaking is um, you sort of need that credibility. Would you tie that back to the relationship that you had with the person who was mentoring you or were there other channels? Okay.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be speaking to me if it wasn't for Drew. Um, He's been such an influence on my creativity and my production of content, my speaking, everything, the way I think about things like I'm not much of a systems thinker or it was not anyway until I learned from, from Drew. And it actually unleashed more creativity instead of what I thought previously constraining it. Um, Drew taught me that if you want to speak, you have to speak, uh, which sounds too pithy for anyone to actually <laughs> act on. So let me just go a little bit deeper there. It, take all the free gigs you can, take all the cheap gigs you can, organize your own membership or community group, online or offline to moderate panels, beyond panels, give talks to the group, um, start a podcast where you have to be a performer and be on a microphone a lot. Basically, start doing it. And you're looking for that little groove to start forming where it's like, okay, in this industry or this community, people are now starting to ask me to continue to speak. If you want to speak, speak, because that'll lead to more speaking. And so I didn't feel like I needed much credibility. I think everybody has credibility in today's day and age because you can access knowledge. Knowledge is not the thing that gets a speaker hired. It's more about the exploration you're willing to go on in your career. So the shift that Drew helped me make is to stop trying to be an expert and out-expert the millions of experts out there and to start being an explorer and ask questions that like Google can't answer in his words. Um, And then publish content about that. Why why is there so much average content in the marketing world? Um, Why are best practices things we so celebrate when there's so many obvious problems with following best practices blindly? Why, 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 why? And publishing lots of content publicly on that journey so that when you get on a stage, you're here to present what you found, not what you are. You're here to say like, okay, you are sitting at A, I'd like to get you to Z, so I'm going to lead you every letter of the way. of mimicking the journey I've been on for several years looking into this stuff. And so I think we should all be better served as if you're an aspiring speaker. Think of it like you're a big concept author, right? You're writing a a book about teamwork. You're writing a book about innovation or whatever it is. And you're like, okay, I got to find the idea and build it. I think that's even better. Not find it, but build it. So I I have a thesis, I'm going to pressure test it, I'm going to talk to people, I'm going to publish content, I'm going to research, and over time, I will have found enough stuff and reflected on it and codified it to publish the book. It's the same idea as being a speaker. You don't need expertise to do that, you need curiosity. And I found that that was actually a better tool to be a paid public speaker than expertise.
1: And that makes perfect sense because you you are also a few steps ahead of your audience, of the people you're speaking to, whether it's through Twitter, social media, blogging, writing. I feel like there is, there's a sweet spot where if you're near enough to your listener, to your um, customer base, whatever it is, you're actually at an advantage over someone who maybe is further down, the, like maybe a decade in, in because you don't have the same connection to that that stage in the journey anymore so yeah that's great advice i like that
0: i think i think that's right i think the other thing too is um your expertise has a limit your curiosity does not and so when you get on a stage you're able to inspire people you know keynotes the things that get top dollar get top billing right and the, the the broad audience keynotes uh Broad audience is the wrong way to say it because you want to be specific. The, the entirety of the event is attending your speech, unlike a breakout where you might pick and choose among five competing speakers or more at the same time slot. So whereas a breakout is a how-to speech, a keynote is a how-to-think speech. And it's really easy to assume you can do a how-to-think speech. So there's a lot of bad ones. Um, cause you feel like, oh, I don't have to have done this before. I can concoct some idea or I'll be a redundant version of Simon Sinek's start with why <laughs> this seems to be where everybody retreats. Um, but if you actually craft a good keynote, that's worth seeing and actually has an impact in the room, people then want you to come to their event. If you do a how to speech, it's kind of, you're kind of done because I-, I can take back the steps, that I got in my notebook and tell my teammates or share with my association, I don't really need a blog post manifest on a stage. I need an immersive experience that changes the way I see, the way I think, and subsequently the way I act. And that's really what a keynote is good for. And, and they're best experienced. It's not like an injection of knowledge, then you're done. It's not a transaction. It needs to be some ways transformational. Um, you know, they're, they're, it, that, that tips too far in the minds of a lot of egotistical speakers. <laughs> you know, you're doing a service, but you're not that special, chill out. But it does need to transform. It needs to change you, not just teach you, not just help you, not instruct you. It has to change you.
1: And how would you define then changing? Like what, when you're trying to find that thread to pull on, on, what are you trying to maybe change or what are you seeking out from your curiosity?
0: I think the difference is, uh, does the idea and the way you're packaging it Give you the audience, whether it's through a podcast, a video, writing, speaking, but let's we can stick with speaking for the easy visuals here. Does the idea have compounding value and use cases? Um, the analogy here is if you're a keynote speaker, if you're trying to get paid on your big ideas, that the shows I like to create uh, in audio and video form, I I want these to be like compasses, not directions. Directions are like my list of steps you should take on this path, A to B. And what happens is, as I draw that on the map, I'm basically saying like, okay, so number one, if the terrain changes, you're kind of out of luck because I'm handing you this map and the map is finite. If there's an obstacle in your path, which almost assuredly there will be, and the one that I couldn't anticipate that was going to exist in your specific situation, if there's like a tree down on your route that I've drawn for you, you don't know how to get around it right? Because I'm giving you directions, the seven-step plan, the how-to. But if I hand you a compass and I teach you how a compass works and why it's important, and I show you how people become great navigators instead of great direction followers, you become one too. And you can walk into any scenario, regardless of the variables you face, and figure it out. And to me, that's what a good, well-wrought, well-developed big idea does for people is it gives you a compass and it makes you a navigator instead of you trying to draw directions for someone else and say, like, follow my list. And I think the hardest part of all of this is you have to be willing to give up ownership of the idea and stop hoarding knowledge and give that away freely. Because if it's all about the steps that you've taken in your career or the steps you prescribe to someone else, it's easy to feel proud because you're like, I've figured this out, I have the answer. But when you're exploring a big idea and building it, it's more like I don't have the answers. So I'm, I'm going to go figure it out. And by the way, that's what a show is good for. It's, it's like, I don't know how to get to the mountain peak, but I see it blurry in the distance and I'd like to get there because I think it's a better place to be than where we're at now. So join us on this journey as we go. I, I don't have all the answers. I'm going to go exploring. You're invited on that quest. Come with me. And I think that's a far more powerful way to inspire people, but also build community around good ideas.
1: Absolutely. And- I mean, that ties right into premise, which is a big part of, of your course and the thing that, that you're promoting right now and finding the premise for the show and why someone should follow along. How, how do you define, say, premise and maybe um, cliff notes of because obviously you have an entire course on this, but like cliff notes of how someone may go about developing that for themselves?
0: Right, right. And the the reason I named the course Growable Shows is because that's what does the growing. It's not the channel you put your show on. And this is true of any project. It doesn't have to be a podcast or a video series. It could be your newsletter. It could be your blog. It could be a book you're writing or an ebook. Um, The premise is what causes people to feel motivation to subscribe. And in a very specific sense, they're aligning with your beliefs or they're subscribing to your ideas, the way you see the world, the point of view, the frustration you feel with the status quo, and this idea, this vision for like what the future holds. They're subscribing to that stuff. And the byproduct is they'll click a button or join a list. And we're so focused in today's day and age on, the, on those parts, on the byproducts of actual subscription. And so it, it starts there. Your premise is the idea driving everything, the hypothesis you're testing, the conceit, point of view, or gimmick. And it's meant to provide people with motivation to subscribe. And we've all experienced the shows where someone describes the premise or we see the tagline or the subtitles and and we're like, oh, that's what the show, oh my gosh, that hit me like a lightning bolt to the chest. Like I'm in, that's for me. We've all experienced that, but it's not lightning. Like you can capture that lightning and like actually, you know, use it over and over again. And so, you know, I hate the idea that the muse is what we're waiting for. You can build your premise, you can develop it which is what the course is about. And so, but the the cliff notes of what a premise really is, if you look under the hood, it's just the combination of two things. It's the topics you explore and then the hook you use to explore it, like how you go about it. Um, So we are exploring, um, let me give you a good example here. I'll give you a pop culture example and a business example. Pop culture example comes from a YouTube show called Hot Ones, (laughs) the topics, interviews with celebrities. Not differentiated, but, the show's a smash hit. Why? The hook. Hot Ones is where the angle, the conceit, it's called a gimmick. In this case, it's celebrities will eat progressively spicier wings as we ask progressively deeper and better questions. That's a hook. It's a gimmick in this case, one type of hook. Um, it's another thing I learned from Drew Davis is that the types of hooks that exist in, in TV. And uh, so that's a pop culture example. Business example, there's a software startup in Indianapolis called Lessonly that sells learning and development training software for your sales teams, essentially, like you want to train your sales teams, you use their tools internally. So you buy Lessonly. Well, dozens, if not thousands of shows exist interviewing sales leaders, talking about the latest sales tactics and trends. Lessonly comes along and creates a podcast called Practice First because they want to elevate the role of practice in sales jobs and have you view this as a job where you can practice well. So they don't talk to sales executives like all their peers do and their competitors. They talk to Olympians They talk to sommeliers, and sure, they talk to executives once in a while, and they're not asking about their end-to-end career story. They're asking about how do you practice, and what can we learn about that so we can all practice better, too. And they see firsthand in their product, they have a bunch of features labeled practice. Their best customers, their most lucrative customers, their stickiest customers, and the fastest customers to close, if you're on the sales team at Lessonly, all want those product suites. Ah, uh, product features called practice. So it all lines up end to end for the business. And so that's what a premise really is. You need to know your topics. That's table stakes. That does not differentiate your show. That puts you as yet another, but the hook makes you an original. right? So it's what you explore plus how you explore it. That's your premise.
1: So with unthinkable, what what's the premise in that one?
0: Unthinkable is a show about doing exceptional work or creativity if you want to just brand it quicker. But our hook is that we'd like to illustrate how breaking from the convention is in fact not that unthinkable. We'd like to show you how it's actually one of the most logical things you can do to question best practices. So unlike Hot Ones, which has a gimmick, unthinkable is much more like Lessonly, which I would uh, or practice first, which I would deem a quest, another type of hook. The gimmick is really easy. It's a little gamified conceit, eating spicy wings. The quest is very murky and kind of messy, and it's what I love to do. It's a little bit more like we want some change here. Let's go to the mountain peak. How do we get there? I don't know. We're on a quest to figure it out. Every episode, we take a step forward. We hack through the jungle. We learn. We publish products and pillar pieces along the way to update you on what we're learning. And we're telling you, it's a quest. It's a journey. Come with us. And so that's really what Unthinkable is about. It's, you know, the tagline is stories of people who break from conventional thinking to make what matters most. And so that hopefully sort of sums it up. Um, but I, I, love the, I love the mess that quests create. There's not one simple thing we do every single episode. So like Bourdain, we can mess with what it sounds like and mess with the format as long as we keep our eye on the mountain peak and keep reminding people that that's where we're going. Right. Because sometimes you're hacking through the jungle to the left and sometimes you're going right. Sometimes you're with a, you have a machete in your hand and sometimes you're on all fours crawling in the mud. Right. So, like, we can change up how we're exploring stuff, which is so fun for me as a maker, as long as we know where it's all leading and, and let you know that you're going there with us. And how do you keep that
1: sort of front of mind, both
0: for you and for the listener? For me, it's about being frustrated about a lot of stuff uh, in in the workplace, like keeping in mind what is broken, what makes me mad. You know, I'm I'm Sicilian, so my blood boils too quick. Um, And when you're Sicilian, you're born with a chip on your shoulder. It's a a defect, but you can turn it into an asset if you can, Um, which is that, you know, I think everywhere I turn, I see something else that's you know, broken or or frustrating, or I have a question about it. Even, even if it's like, I've answered this question, this episode, but that leads to six more questions. So it's like letting things sort of snowball. You know, all you need is one broad question. There's your first episode. So, you know, if you want to do a show on why people don't ship their work, that's your first episode. Why don't people ship their work? You're not going to answer it in the first episode, but that's where you start. You take a stab and you're like, huh, a little pathway has opened up due to my frantic swinging in the jungle here to the left. So the next episode, I'm going to step left and that's this next question, right? It's like, okay, well, people people said imposter syndrome like five times in episode one. What is imposter syndrome? That's episode two, right? How do we combat it? Maybe that's episode three or the end of episode two. So that's what it It's is. You're constantly following your intuition and following your curiosity by letting your current projects beget new related projects. And if you get to a point where that doesn't happen, it's not happening, you have two choices. You have to kill it because you're no longer intrinsically motivated to pursue that idea. Or you have to go talk to people who are in the group that you'd like to serve because they will give you way more ideas than answers.
1: Yeah, I really like that having the thread from episode to episode. Now, if you're doing an interview podcast, say, then you would want to find someone for that second episode who's an expert in imposter syndrome, someone who just may so happen to understand it. How would you you go about lining that up?
0: Well, again, this is where the like Kabuki theater of creativity is like, I I don't want to kick into that mode and be like, here's a really smart sounding process because here's how I think it actually goes down, which (laughs) is when you start a show, especially if it's a guest driven show, like an interview show, I do think the first step is like, cool, what guests do we want to have on now? And you start grabbing at names. But I think what has to happen is you need to make this turn eventually, where you start to see themes, you start to have broader questions about the subject matter that you're exploring. And this is why you need a premise, because otherwise you're just like talking to successful people about anything. Um, and, you know, that's, it's hard to come up with good questions and episode ideas when you don't have a premise. But if you know your premise and you are a guest or interview-driven show, eventually you're like, well, I've talked to like seven people so far just by grabbing at who they are, booking names. I actually now have this question or thing I think we need to touch on. Or through line I noticed about, you know, all these interviews that it should be its own standalone episode. So while episode eight is still ultimately like the name of the guest is the title of the episode, for example, you have a clear purpose as to why they're coming on the show. And so I think eventually you need to switch it. You have to have the premise to do this. But if you're exploring just talking to names first, then the premise needs to precede the names eventually. And you're retrofitting a theme or a question with a guest. It's like, who can help us answer this? We're going to book Jeff. And so I think that's when a show clicks because end to end, it all makes sense. Jeff's a great guest in and of himself, but also speaks to the premise. And also this topic, subtopic, supporting the premise is something we've been leaning against for a few episodes and we need to go further in that direction. And listeners are like, yes, the show's finally for me. It's deeply resonating at that point.
1: I really like that because as I've talked to more and more people, I see writing being a key aspect. Like, I don't personally, I've never been a writer. I've not never even been a public really person posting on social media or blogging. Like, we work behind the scenes and help other people build businesses behind Fair. the platform they're building. Um, but yeah, I've seen that sort of through line. Like, you would, you're, like you said, you would call yourself a writer for people who don't really gravitate towards it, sort yeah. of like the more, uh, hip nomenclature whatever you want to say um and i've seen that time and time again so like that's actually that's or not actually i mean that's a really great point that that is a through line that i've i've asked people just sort of briefly about but it would make sense to inject that in and maybe it not maybe actually just explore that and go deeper
0: with that with more people and this is where the whole idea of like uh your expertise is is infinite your expertise is finite and your curiosity is infinite um the expert approach to that is like, I'm going to talk to another expert next episode, next expert. The curiosity driven approach is like, well, I mean, we've talked to seven sales executives. They all mention that their salespeople practice. Why don't we go talk to an Olympian instead of another sales executive? Because they're world-class at practicing and it fits the show, right? It's a very distinct purpose. And so what what happens when you make that switch, I think, is you open up way more interesting possibilities, or at least new and different possibilities that are very refreshing for you to work on, which is where it all begins, quite frankly, and for the audience to receive when it's all said and done.
1: And so then when someone is starting out, it, there's a struggle to find guests, I would say. Um, and then when you have a premise and you have maybe certain people who who can speak to this and you want to proceed with with it how hmm. what do you think about that like the approach to getting the right people in when a show is very small the the people who really can speak to what you want
0: to talk about i wish i remember who said this and i'm also going to butcher his quote i retweeted (laughs) it several days ago damn damn you rapid feeds of social media but basically he said something like your mission will get you in more doors than your metrics. And I so freaking loved that because if you have an actual mission with your show, if your premise is gonna resonate deeply with your listeners, yes, but also your guests, it's like, wow, yeah, like thank you, Les Lee, for asking me to be on your show practice first. Because while everyone else wants to interview me about sales generically, this is something I've believed about sales forever. And I can't believe someone is making a show about this. It aligns so deeply with me. So I mentioned subscription earlier. There's a sense of subscription when somebody agrees to appear on your show as a guest, they're subscribing again, not clicking the button necessarily. They're subscribing to your belief system. So if you do have that clear cut premise and you can articulate it to someone, that's kind of what you're pitching. You're not pitching the longevity or size of the show. You're pitching that you're like, this is a change-making vehicle. We're exploring something underexplored or we believe something that needs to be shouted loudly and spread more like this is broken and this is a better way. And we're journeying to figure out how to get to the better way. And people react positively. I mean, like, you're not going to reach every guest, like the person who's just trying to promote a book and they're on the circuit, you're not going to reach them. And, you know, there's a debate to be had about whether or not you would ever want to, but I do think you'll win over, if not your dream guests, slightly larger name guests than you anticipate from zero, from scratch when you're starting out, if you lead with a clear premise for the show, which, oh, by the way, means some people who hear that are going to be completely not opposed necessarily, but just like, that's super specific. And I don't believe that at all, right? They're going to be like, no, this isn't for me at all. And you have to be okay losing some of those people and bringing the rest deeply into your corner.
1: Yeah, I really like that. Um, I wanna shift gears just a little bit to your podcast, like your podcasts and the production quality because it is top notch. I mean, it is the audio engineering, the the music, the engagement. It really just ropes you in. And now I know you have a team. I'm not sure how large, I'd be curious about that. Maybe let's just start there, sort of what your team and the structure of your business looks like.
0: Right, so um, my, I have public projects and paid projects. Paid projects are fewer in number. So it's public speaking, a recorded course on show development, uh, a periodic workshop that I run, uh, any books that I publish, and soon the membership group. Now, I'm not gonna give you every free project publicly because uh, we would just oh, yeah. spend all day listening out and nobody wants that. Um, but the ones that I think that are you know, most active, most interesting, three clips, podcast about podcasts, uh, unthinkable, the story style podcast, and my newsletter called Playing Favorites just kind of like it pins together a lot of these ideas we've been talking about. It comes out once a week. So those are like the three big free ones. And and on these projects, I have a director of community success who is uh, part-time and works with me to develop all kinds of, you know, from designing little things for this project to, you know, coming up with an editorial calendar of community posts for this one and lots of lots of a lot of a lot. Um, they're the multi hyphen it to end all multi hyphen <laughs> on my team. Uh, I have an editor that I work with, Molly. She works with me on lots of projects too, lots of written projects. If you're reading something in a book of mine, I wrote it, but chances are good that Molly and I worked on pieces of it before together. Um, And she's a great editor. I work with two freelance producers on three clips, and they'll do a lot of the end-to-end block and tackle stuff and some of the creative um, direction of different episodes in collaboration with me. And then I get to show up and be, be talent and be an interviewer and, and, and a guide into the subject material. And that's it. So two part-time producers, a part-time editor and a part-time community manager. Um, and so I think, I, I just want to be transparent about that because I think a lot of people might see like a person who makes lots of projects publicly and makes money doing it and be like, they do it all themselves. And like, no, no, most mm-hmm. people who are doing this do not. And it took me years to learn that you can build a team on a personality driven business, not just like another entity with a name on it that has employees. There's like tons of ways to work with other people. And I'm just now discovering that. So I I wanted to be transparent. And uh, I totally forgot your question, but I thought that was important to share. (laughs) Oh, no, I mean, that was, yeah, that's where I
1: was starting what the structure of your team looks like. And how long ago did you start? Because you said you just sort of you're discovering it now or recently. How recently did you start working with people? I mean, help. that's
0: why marketing, that's why marketing showrunners exist as a website. Cause it was my attempt to be like, if I create a branded thing instead of JayConzo.com which is getting a whole big facelift in March and marketing showrunners will take a back seat. Cause anybody going to that site is, is going there cause I'm writing there and, mm-hmm. or it's my show. And so it's like, well, I should just put that on my personal site I, embrace that. Like you can be a non douchey personality driven business and not be full of yourself or, or full of crap. And, you know, fight hard against the perception, I guess, that putting your big face on your website makes you fool yourself. There's just so much negativity bottled up in this like weird personality-driven culture um, that I dislike. But I can still put that aside or deal with that insecurity and have a team and use my personal site as the HQ. And so that's kind of what it's becoming. So it took me a long time to realize I can still work with other people. I can still build a thriving business. I can still serve others without having this like, logo and brand name that is different than, than what I do. And the logo and the brand name can be project specific, like global shows, the course, three clips, the podcast, like those things. Um, So I probably started working with somebody. I think Molly was the first person, September of 2019, I believe it was. So it took me a long time to realize like, this is viable. This is, it's also very fun and I get better because of their great work too.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah it's tough to be 100 percent solo like my business partner and I it's it's the two of us we do everything in-house but mm-hmm. without one another it'd just be impossible I mean it just right. doesn't work that way like what really speaks to us is sort of that minimalist business approach which I would say you're on that same path like you you don't have employees for the sake of employees you have found needs and you've filled those needs and that that to me is very valuable it's something that I think a lot of people might see sort of employees as like a vanity metric where like, oh, I have 12 people that are working for me. But that also means I need to pay 12 salaries. I need to do all of these things that aren't necessarily maybe giving the return beyond the sort of um, the feeling that the person has.
0: A big part of my first book was about essentially self-awareness in decision making in your work. A lot of people, they, oh, it's a best practice. I'll do it. And it's like, best practices are not the goal, actually. The, the goal is the best approach for you. That requires you to add in the you, right? Like your team, your unique situation, yourself. So we don't, we're not taught this in school, which is a total shame. But, you know, self-awareness comes, I think, often from hard times and reflecting on them. Uh, and so I disliked a lot of jobs with logos that people look at and they're like, well, you would love working there, insert any human here, like Google, <laughs> I hated my job at Google. Like I just felt I would like I was, I, I was not creative. I didn't like the end product, which is selling advertising. Um, I didn't like any of the kind of like creeping ideas. This is back in 2008, but so before we knew this now that like, this is the surveillance economy that, you know, explodes someday. Didn't like the creeping sensation of that. Like there's a lot of reasons I didn't like that job. Um, but in general, one, loves working for Google. One should work for Google if one wants to work in tech. No one here is one. Like you're you. And so getting that self-awareness is very important. And I think back to your point on building, you know, not having employees for the sake of employees. It's like one to be successful should build a business that can support employees. Well, I'm not one on me. And I realized very quickly, like, I don't like management. I don't, I like to make Um, I do like working with others, however. I do like teaching others, however. I do like some of the things about management, but not actually managing. Um, The mechanics financially of my business probably will never support a lot of employees, like, and on down the list. And so, it's like, you just have to be like, this is who I am and what I like, which is, those are hard-won insights. And as a result, I have to accept not having the thing that opposes that idea. So, if I want you know, the personality driven business, I can't also split my time sort of in weak fashion supporting a third party name. It should just be me and my work, right? I can't support 16 employees. I can support a bunch of freelancers and on down the list. And and I think the kernel of all this, Jeff, just to end this little soapbox rant (laughs) is control versus certainty. Like in one's career, back to the generalization, um, you're like, you want to find a job that gives you freedom to be you, but also pays the bills and has certainty of direction and the job will be there tomorrow and the company sounds nice when you tell others you work there. Unfortunately, in the real world, those two are inversely proportional. The more control you have, the less certainty you probably have. If you're gonna be a total control freak, go start your own thing. Know that there is zero certainty. (laughs) If you want lots and lots of certainty, go work for Salesforce, but stop complaining when everybody around you is stepping on your projects and your creativity because Salesforce is designed for certainty, not control. So you're giving up all your control to go work for a huge corporation like that. And there's trade-offs in between, right? There's a gradation here. So know that the more of one you have, the less of the other you also have and be okay with that. Embrace that, okay, I actually lean control or I'm extremely into control. That's me. So I I need to get better personally. And this is a journey that we're all on. I need to get better at not being so stressed out at my current lack of certainty because I just value control too much right? So we all have a version of that. And I think looking that in the eye and embracing it, and then also knowing what the inverse is as a result and accepting that too, that's transformative in in one's career.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It absolutely is though. I mean, it is so important. And it's like, like Brian Clark has um, unemployable. You find that you just aren't that person for a job, which is something that I found like over a decade ago, it just didn't work for me. It's like, I need more control. I need the freedom. I need to be able to to sort of craft my days and be able to yep. pursue the things that, that I feel have value in them. Right. And yeah. I'm,
0: you know, I'm making it sound pithier than it is, right. It's a mess. It's a, it's a slog to figure this out. You know, an oh. easy example is my wife and I met at Google in 2008 hmm. First day on the job. I was like, you know, last day I ever wore khakis to Google. I showed up with a button down shirt tucked into khakis <laughs> 2008. I'm like, I'm now a professional post-college and in the lobby, it's, Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Jay. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Jay. And then I introduced myself to my wife, and I was like, <laughs> "Hi," uh, and it, you know, game it it over for me. Best return on investment of any job ever. I met my wife day one of my first job ever. But we've talked about like since leaving. She's become a doctor of psychology, and I'm incredibly proud of her. And she does meaningful work, and I brag about her all the time. And I love the work I do. And every so often, we're like, you know, if we both stayed at Google how much money our family would have. We'd be millionaires, literally, given the stock and the salaries and the growth of that company since then. But we'd be miserable millionaires. And it's like, it's, that's not worth the trade-off for us. And we're fortunate that we can say that. We're fortunate to be in a position and blessed and, and stupid lucky to say, we can actually trade down some money because it's not vital. We're not struggling to put food on the table as so many families are. But at the same time, it's like, we do have this sneaking attacks all the time that our egos level on our own self-awareness. And you have to learn to sort of beat those back and say, actually, but this is who I am. I I can't control that. I like control more than I like certainty. And we're way happier as a result. And, And she's the same way.
1: Yeah, And I think happiness is something that someone like you speaking about that, it's so valuable because I know when I had, like when I worked a job, there was a very long time where I didn't see the other side. Like I, I knew what I wanted. I wanted to be free. I wanted to start the next like million dollar business because that's the only way to escape the rat race. Like in my mind, like I had to start the next Facebook or whatever it was. I didn't see the short path that I was. So like at the time I was already doing since high school web design for people. I was like, oh, if I do more of that, that is a path. That's actually a business. And it took right. the longest time. It, it took the right people saying the things dozens, hundreds of times for it to finally click yeah. and have my yeah. brain realize that, oh, yeah, I can get there through a channel that isn't so grandiose.
0: Right. And, and all this idea, these ideas uh, like self-awareness and, you know, I've said before, bring your full self to work and all of that stuff. Um, if you're ever in Boston There's an Italian restaurant everybody should go to. It's called SRV, Serene Republic of Venice. Um, And my friend Mike Lombardi is one of the owners and head chef, Mike Lombardi. Um, Mike and I had a long conversation about his line cooks. So if you don't know, in a kitchen, line cooks are usually pretty replaceable cogs in the system, right? They're like piecing together meal after meal after meal. They have their mise en place where all the things are set out for them and they just put together on the line, assembly line style, all these dishes. They're line cooks. And Mike said to me, In my kitchen, we pay line cooks X. You know what that restaurant down the street that doesn't care about customer service and doesn't care about fine cuisine and doesn't care about, you know, like building a successful thriving restaurant. You know what they pay line cooks? If we pay them X, they pay them X. So he's like, how do I compete with that? Well, I have to attract the right type of people around me. And I say to them upfront, this is the self-awareness part. I want to create a wall of fame in my office of line cooks who are off as cooks and chefs elsewhere thriving in their careers. So if you're a line cook here, know that at least the opportunity is here. And even some of the expectation is here that you will also take an interest in becoming not just a line cook, like asking about menu development and all that stuff. Um, Things that, you know, I'm not too initiated in the back workings of a kitchen, but he's like, I want to train you to leave me. And if that's something you're interested in, you're, The dollar amount is what I pay. It's just like the lazy restaurant down the street. Come here. But if all you want is like, I need to, I need the paycheck and I don't want to think about work and I don't want to work very hard, you know, go sling sauce down the street. And he's okay with that. He's okay with losing that type of person. In favor of the other type of person, and it's like nothing changes—the financial situation, the dollars are the same. But what changes is Mike is so aware of the type of business he likes to build and wants to build, and his aspirations for his team, and he leads with that. And and back to that quote, you know, your mission will get you much further than your metrics. And I think it's working for Mike. He's in—he was the number one rated Italian restaurant in Boston. I haven't checked in pre-pandemic and how that's changed, but he's thriving, and they're thriving. And I know they're still—they're kicking through the pandemic just fine. And I think a lot of it is the mission and the self-awareness that the team has, like helpful friction to bring the right people your way and repel everybody else.
1: Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice. I mean, yeah, both internally and externally for the people underneath you in your company, but also for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to take too much of your time. This has been wonderful. Like, Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to chat. It It was
0: a lot of fun. You're a really great interviewer, by the way.
1: Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) Still figuring it out. Still very early. Just just learning, hopefully getting a little better with each episode. So we'll see how it goes. But um, where should we send people to check everything out that you're up to?
0: Yeah, um, you can go to JayConzo.com. Everything's going to be there. Um, It's kind of a mishmash of stuff. It's a Frankenstein monster like site right now as we speak in the end of January. As of the beginning of March, it's going to be a completely different site. It's going to be a breath of fresh air. I think it will align with stuff you like, Jeff. It's going to be much more minimalist in its design. Um, The phrase in in my head and with the designers I was working with was soft with significance instead of being so shouty like my current website and lots of other other websites out there. So jiconzo.com. I'm also just infinitely available on Twitter. Um, So please feel free to reach out if anything I said was interesting or if you have questions about the work I do, like give me a shout on Twitter or head over to the website and I'll see you there.
1: Sweet. So again, thank you very much and take care. Thanks, Jeff. A big thanks to Jay for joining me on this episode. Be sure to check out everything he's up to at jaconzo.com. That link will be in the show notes. As always, this episode of Starting Now is brought to you by Built. At Built, we help you get started online. Whether you want to start a blog or a business, head on over to built.co. That's B Y L T.co to get started. Built. Your website, built for you simply. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Also, be sure to check out the video version, which is on YouTube. It's a sort of three-camera setup that I'm really proud of. So I hope you check it out and let me know what you think. And that'll do it for this week. Again, I'm Jeff Seris. This has been Starting Now, and I'll see you next time.